Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. How many of us understand the healthcare system in America, and especially healthcare insurance? I know I don't. I have a lot of questions. How did the healthcare come to be 15% of the US economy, over $3 trillion? And why have healthcare costs soared higher and higher, more than inflation and average incomes? When did the market for healthcare services come unmoored from free markets and price competition? Why is healthcare insurance so different from every other kind of insurance? Is national healthcare insurance like Great Britain's inevitable? Or are there free market ways out of our healthcare cost problems? And how did healthcare, according to some, become, quote, a universal human right when more than 90% of the medicine being practiced today did not exist in 1950? How do we deal with the terrible end-of-life healthcare questions and that there is no cure for old age itself. So when I came across some terrific explanations of how all this came to be, I knew I had to bring its author on the show, John Steele Gordon. John Steele Gordon is an editor at American Heritage where he wrote the Business of America column. His books include one of the best books in American history I've ever read, An Empire of Wealth, An Epic History of American Economic Power. John, welcome. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, healthcare, you, you, you wrote a piece recently in, in Primus Magazine for Hillsdale, and you gave, for me, an enormously helpful bit of context about just how far modest, modern medicine or medicine has come over the last, I guess, couple millennia. And uh, you make the point that I just made that 90% of the medicine practiced today did not exist in 1950. Can you, I guess, for, for me, could bring me up to date of how we, you know, where, where was healthcare for most of human existence and how quickly did things accelerate uh, through the last century or two? Okay, well, um, rather a different line of work is, is often known as the oldest profession, but I think you can make a pretty good case that it's actually um, doctors are the oldest profession. Um, I mean, herbal medicines have been known to all um, human societies. And, um, and then the, it was the Greeks who um, first figured out that disease is not caused by supernatural forces, it's caused by natural forces. Yeah. And they began um, systematizing medicine. Um, a Greek physician named Galen in the second century AD wrote enormously on, on the subject and that became you know, iconic in the Middle Ages and so advance in medicine really stopped up until the 16th century when they began to get much better idea of, of um, human anatomy. Um, but even up until the early 19th century, um, there were very few things. There were a few drugs like digitalis and quinine. Mm -hmm. um, but other than that, there was um, not much they could do. It wasn't until the germ theory of disease was developed in the middle of the 19th century that it was germs that were responsible for many um, kinds of diseases uh, that medicine really began to advance um, and became the, the, a modern scientific um, enterprise. And then around 1930, suddenly 
things began to explode in terms of what we were able to do. Because before then, basically what a doctor could do when you became, came down with a disease was he could uh, ameliorate the symptoms, but it was basically up to you to either cure yourself or not cure yourself, as the case may be. Um, but 1930s, sulfur drugs, the first antibiotics were introduced. Um, and by the 1950s, um, surgery had greatly advanced. The heart-lung machine allowed um, chest surgery for the first time. Um, and it, it just took off from there. Pharmaceuticals exploded with things like antihistamines and antibiotics and antipsychotics, which emptied um, mental hospitals all over the world. And it's just, it's been snowballed ever since. And it's, it's just an amazing amount of advance. It means out of the 100 great advances of medicine, probably 80 were in the last 70 or 80 years. Well, I think you point out in 1891, the death rate for American children in their first year of life was 125 per thousand. And that by 1925, it had been reduced to uh, less, than less than 16 per thousand. And that we saw a dramatic rise in the life expectancy of Americans uh, just in the last hundred years. Indeed. Well, at first, the, in 1947 uh, was life expectancy. By the 1930s, 65 was life expectancy. Most of that was due to because of the decline in infant mortality. Much of that was due to pasteurization of milk. Um, in the last 50 years, life expectancy has been increasing rapidly. It's now approaching 80 years. And most of that is because we are able to cure the diseases that used to kill us. Now, all of these advances you talk about before 1950, and of course, one of my themes is the market is a wonderful innovation machine, and you let people uh, find markets for their innovations and, and good things happen. What, what drove the advances that occurred uh, you know, during, the, during the formative time, say before 1950? Was everything pretty much a free market in healthcare then, and people paid for it out of their own pocket? Yes, um, health insurance didn't exist until about 1930. Um, and so, and you know, there wasn't a whole lot that you could do with medicine those days. So it wasn't all that expensive. We spent on average $23 per person per year on medical care in 1930. Um, today we spend something like 3,500. And, and so the, what actually, what, a curious thing happened was that health insurance was invented in the early 1930s, but it wasn't invented by insurance people. It was invented by doctors because they wanted, hospitals are very expensive and the expenses continue whether there are patients there or not. And so they wanted a way to smooth out their cash flow. So Baylor Hospital in, in, in Dallas offered a group of um, teachers, they could, they could, if they paid $6 um, a year, I believe it was, they were entitled up to 21 days of hospital care. Well, well hospitals, let's, let's, the, the hospitals, uh, there are only about a couple hundred hospitals in America towards the end of the 19th century, 1870, 1880. Right. And then they exploded. And I think you point out because of the germ theory and the fact that people could be safer in hospitals, hospitals up to that point before we understood more about how to treat Ill illnesses, but really were places where poor people went to die. 
And we had, if you wanted healthcare, you wanted medicine, it was, it was performed, if you could afford it, it was by a doctor in your own house or maybe at a, at a clinic that he ran or she ran. Correct. It was all he. And then, you know, once we learned about antisepsis, um, well, then hospitals became places not only where you could cure disease, but also where you could research um, disease. Suddenly you had all these patients and you could teach doctors how to, you know, treat them and what have you. So they were enormous force in, in moving medicine forward. So we went from uh, almost no hospitals to 7,000 hospitals in when, uh, 1970? Correct. But the, the, the thing about hospitals that you've pointed out is that they're tremendously expensive uh, ideas. I mean, you've got a building, fixed costs, you've got a lot of people to work in them, and the patients come and go. And in order to pay for the operation of the hospital, they had to figure out a better way to create steady cash flow. Yes. And so they didn't wait till people showed up to, for, to check in. They came up with this idea where you prepay in effect for healthcare, and that's really what launched the uh, the modern uh, medical insurance industry. It was called Blue Cross in those days, Sacramento. Right. And then hospitals banded together and and uh, allowed this insurance to be uh, this, this prepaid healthcare to be used at all the hospitals that participated in the plans. That that's that's correct. Work? But it wasn't, you know, insurance traditionally is you had a deductible. Insurance was to protect yourself against unexpected, very large expenses, like, you know, a tornado hits your house or your car is wrecked. That's what insurance was supposed to do. This early insurance was the other way around. They paid for the first 21 days of hospital care. After that, you were on your own. Um, so it, it didn't really work terribly well as insurance. And then... Unfortunately, politics got involved. Um, I'm just I'm just envisioning people trying to get well in the 19th, 18th, 18th, 19th day of their stay, exactly. <laughs> knowing, knowing they were going to be kicked uh, out. <laughs> well, 21 days was a long hospital stay even then. Um, hospital stays tend to be much shorter these days. And um, but also, what happened was that it it made you want to be treated in the hospital, the most expensive way to be treated because that's when somebody else would pay for it. If you just went to the doctor. So, so, so if, you pay, if you paid into this insurance plan, the only place you could get treatment was in a hospital. You couldn't exactly. go to the doctor and play it. Right, and so it was a great incentive to go into the hospital, which of course is what the doctors had all along. And the problem with that is that that's the most expensive way to treat healthcare. So we already launched into a, into a system where you've got, uh, you, you don't have a market at work. You're just going to go to a hospital and, and no place else. When did the doctors come into the picture? Didn't they create their own insurance plan called uh, Blue Shield? Blue Shield, right. Very similar? Follow that in the 1930s as well. So if you wanted health insurance, then you had either Blue Cross, you had uh, Blue Cross or Blue Shield. Most likely you wanted both. Correct. And so what are the flaws in that system besides uh, the fact you can only have treatment uh, in a hospital? Well, that's, that was the main one, of course. Um, and so what actually happened very soon is when the war broke out in 1941, um, suddenly we had a terrible labor shortage in this country. Um, the unemployment rate in 1944 was something like half of 1%. 
Um, and so companies were very anxious to get uh, workers, but they couldn't raise wages because of the wage and price controls during the war. Um, so what they started offering fringe benefits, one of which was medical insurance. And Unfortunately, what this meant was that most workers by the 19, by 1950, most people were getting their medical insurance through their employer, and therefore they had no choice but to take what he offered. And sometimes that wouldn't have been the best, you know, a young person needs a different kind of health insurance than an old person does, because, we, you know, as we get older, we need more and more medical care. Well, most of the cost of medical care today goes into the last few years of life. I mean, isn't it something like half? It's a, or a third, I believe. Something like a third in the last six months of of, um, of life. Because sometimes what the, you know, doctors were always trained to fight to keep people alive. Uh, now, I mean, at old age, you know, things begin to break down at some point. Just your whole systems are breaking down. And they can, they can stop this thing, and then they stop that, and then they stop something else. And... Um, it can be enormously expensive, and the quality of life is, is often very poor. And um, we have to figure out how to do this in a moral way. And that takes, you know, theologians and ethicists, not um, historians, to figure that out. And the thing about the healthcare insurance back, back in the day with hospital insurance was that the cost of treating either a, a, the birth of a baby or a, or a back problem or whatever was roughly the same. So there was no catastrophically high numbers as we see today. I mean, my, my wife had back surgery and it was, it was a six figure, six figure number that, uh, yeah. That, uh, and I used to be, uh, I used to be very, uh, free market. Gee, we shouldn't have Medicare. Uh, but now I'm on Medicare and it's, uh, it's a pretty good program if you're on it. Yes, I'm on <laughs> Medicare. I heartily approve of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the the how did the healthcare insurance ended up so different from other kinds of insurance? For the first place, most healthcare insurers are are nonprofit. And Correct. how did that how did that come about? Well, it was a, an agreement, and, and, with and also they're not regulated by the state insurance regulators, which regulate every other kind of insurance. Right. Well, the insurance regulators started moving to, to regulate them like regular insurance companies, which means you have to keep large financial reserves. And um, they didn't want to do that. And, and so they simply made a deal that they'd accept anybody who applied and then and they would operate as nonprofits. So the quid pro quo to be not regulated as a insurance company by the state regulators with the IRS was that we're going to be nonprofit. And that was, that was the trade. Was there anything else yeah. involved? Oh, well, also that they would take anybody who applied. Whereas okay. so might not want to do that. So. And so what happened was as, as Blue Cross Blue Shield expanded in, in this, in this form, it really other, other insurance, healthcare insurance companies were forced into the same model. Correct, because there was just there was no way to compete. So how uh, how do how do how do we get cost controls into this system? It's one of the things that I think is concerning now is the way the healthcare insurance is set up with the insurance provided by employers, and even in the the government programs, Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, 
you really don't have any incentive to shop for price because it's all going to be paid. And then if you look at your, your statement, I mean, the, the, the retail price is some astronomically high number and then what's really being paid is, is a vastly lower number. And so the typical person looking around to have something treated is not looking for cost uh, savings or looking for something else. No, one thing that one way that this insurance was different from ordinary insurance was that ordinary insurance it indemnifies you against loss. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if your car is wrecked, the insurance company writes you a check, and then you decide how best to you know go out and buy a new car or put the money in the bank and walk to work or whatever. Um, with in medical insurance, it's a fee for service, and so the doctors have no incentive to cut their costs in order to gain market share. Um, and, so, and a great incentive to add a dollar or two, you know, as long as everybody else is charging the same thing. So this yeah. is an engine of costs going up. You know, it's a really dumb idea. So the reason we don't have a price mechanism in, in healthcare, which is one of the questions I ask at the beginning, is the way the insurance system was set up uh, back in the 30s and the way it evolved with the IRS making these companies non not allowing them to operate as nonprofit and getting out from under the uh, in, in state insurance regulators where their cost of capital would have been a lot higher. And they would have had to compete more on price. Yes. And that's, you know, that's the key to solving the, the, the cost of medicine is, is um, price competition. I mean, if you, you know, the magic question is doctor, how much is this going to cost? And under the current system, most of us just don't care. I mean, I had my gallbladder out 20 years ago, and I haven't the faintest idea what it cost because the insurance pedigree wrote the check. And um, now, of course, some medicine, you know, if you're having a heart attack, you're not in a good position to bargain. But most men, 85% of medicine is chronic care, not acute care. I mean, it's handling your bad back. It's handling, you know, your overactive stomach or whatever. Well, also, it doesn't cover routine things. You know, regular insurance, let's say auto insurance, doesn't, doesn't pay for oil changes, doesn't pay for regular maintenance, whereas healthcare plans do. Yes, and that, that is a very bad system because basically it's not insurance at all, which protects you against unexpected loss. It's a prepayment plan and a very expensive one because, you know, they, you know the government in its infinite wisdom decided that car insurance should cover oil changes. So it used to be you'd go down to the garage, pay the guy $25 four times a year, and he'd change your oil for $100. Now, suddenly, he bills the insurance company, but he has to wait for his money and has more clerical expenses, so he charges $35. And then the insurance company has to, you know, they have clerical expenses and they need to make a profit and what have you, so they charge you $50. So now in your prepayment plan, you're paying $200 a year for oil changes instead of $100. It's exactly the same thing in medicine. <laughs> so, so, uh, um, you, so, the, and what's been happening with the hospitals? Because this all started with the hospitals, as, but as I understand it, we ended up, we started, we had 7,000 or so in 1975, but that's fallen about 5,500 today because our ability to treat things outside a hospital, treat, treat illness outside a hospital has grown exponentially. And so the demand for hospital beds has been falling, yet 
it's very hard to get rid of hospitals or, or merge hospitals together. And consequently, the costs of, uh, of being in a hospital have skyrocketed. What, what's keeping hospitals from going out of business or, or merging or, or, uh, or, or working in a more economic fashion? Um, anything is local pressure, unions. Um, you know, everybody wants, you know, efficient hospitals, but they want their hospital. They don't want, you know, then nobody wants their hospital to be closed. Doctors like empty beds because that makes it easy to admit patients. Um, and so you have all this surplus capacity in hospitals. And they also want, the doctors want the hospital to have, treat everything. Whereas it'd be much more efficient if we do have some specialty hospitals like um, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, which treats only cancer. Uh, but most hospitals are general hospitals and um, they need to be more efficient and then cut down. We could probably, you know, cut down at least a third of all the hospital beds in the, in the, in the country if we could do it without, the, you know, get the politics out of there. And so it's just simply a matter of you put, you, it turns up in the paper that XYZ hospital is closing and the, and the unions and the local politicians jump in and you just can't do it. Exactly. Uh, let's, let's get, let's talk a little bit more about the employer paid system because that's one of the problems and that also employees don't have any incentive to shop for any other insurance because if their company provides it, why, why bother? And then the insurance companies like the employee paid because they can cherry pick the kind of people they want to insure. Exactly. A word for that, uh, a term for it. Uh, the, uh, I can't remember the, uh, what, I'm looking around here for what community that is. Community rating, it's called. Community rating, that's what I was looking for, community rating. So what's, how does community rating work? Well, insurance company, they look at a community and see how many, you know, they're insuring automobiles. They want to know how many accidents this particular um, locality is likely to have. You're going to have more accidents in New York City than you're going to have in rural Iowa. And so people in New York City have higher insurance rates. Um, but it's a big community, whereas they, you don't get, you know, you don't have to pay extra insurance because you happen to live on a block with a lot of lousy drivers. Um, <laughs> but with a, when they're providing it to a company, they look for the company and they say, well, this, this company has a lot of healthy employees, uh, does many problems. And, and so they, um, they cherry pick those and then the other everybody left over has to pay much higher rates because of that. And, and this is why uh, uh, what 65% of workers without health insurance work for companies with 25 or fewer employers, employees. Exactly. So if you have one employee in that 25 employee company, one employee who needs considerable and expensive medical care, everybody right. else, their rates go way up. Oh, and also, often you can't leave the company because you wouldn't, wouldn't be able to get insurance, which is just plain wrong. Um, has Obamacare fixed this? No, Obamacare has not fixed it. Um, I personally think that Obamacare was designed to force the end of private medicine and to, you know, make socialized medicine inevitable. I think it was, um, I, I, I don't have nice things to say about Obamacare. Well, well, say a few, say a few, un, say a few unnice things then. What, what are, <laughs> tick, tick off two or three of the uh, 
the the particulars here. Well, it was it was it was done without you know economics had nothing to do with it. Um, they they did it, it. It doesn't change the basic fee for service system, which is part of the problem. Um, it forces people to. You can still go out and get insurance. I mean, if your house burns down, you can't buy the insurance the next day. But if you have a heart attack, you can buy the insurance the next day. Um, and that's just plain wrong. Um, good. Yeah, sends up everybody's prices again. So the the two other programs that beside we talked about the Blue Cross Blue Shield. One one of Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, the, the the healthcare providers hated these because they hated social the idea of socialized medicine, but then when the programs kicked in in the '60s and '70s, and particularly the '80s, they loved it because people could afford services they couldn't couldn't pay for in the private system, and uh, you know it's been with us ever since. Uh, but but you know but what are the I mean so once again we've got another more programs where we're not paying attention to well, what things cost. Exactly. It doesn't, um, Medicare, you don't, you don't care what it costs. You just, you know, the government takes the money every month out of your account. And, um, and also that's fee for service. It's again, you know, the doctors have no incentive to compete in terms of price. And so they don't. And, you know, the, the really big problem here is that every hospital has a, a list of what they charge and it's a state secret. They will not tell you um, because basically what they do is they pay a lot less, you know, Medicare and the big insurance companies have negotiated rates way down. So if you happen to be uninsured, you go to the hospital, you have to pay, pay full freight, uh, which again is just wrong. And actually the, the Trump administration has required hospitals and other medical service providers to post their prices. Mm-hmm. And and then what they did was they, they would say, well, procedure PQ17H is $5,000. And of course, you don't know what the procedure is. I mean, so they have to put in a new rule saying, in English, please. And there are hospitals now, and they're spreading. There are more of them. Uh, the Surgical Center of Oklahoma, for instance, uh, they post their prices online. And it's a, it's a complete package. Now, if you need a knee replacement, you will go online and they'll tell you it's $15,607 or whatever the sum is. And that's it. Whereas um, in other, most hospitals, you can negotiate the price. And actually, some people have begun doing that. They, they go to Oklahoma Surgical Center, find out what the price is, and then go to their local hospital and say, well, you do it for the same price. Um, so they, they have these nominal prices, which are, you know, nonsense. I mean, if you look, you know, I'm, when I get from Medicare, it says the doctor charged $150 for something or other. Medicare allowed 37, and that and the doctor took the 37. Well, he's obviously not losing money. I mean, so what does this $150 come from? It's a it's phony, phony price. Everybody should have to post their prices, and then once you post prices, once Hospital A says we'll do it for 15,000, then Hospital B is not going to be able to charge you know, 25,000 because people are going to go to hospital A and the insurance companies are going to go to hospital A. So there's no price transparency. Is there any quality transparency out there? One of the, one of the issues we have is that because of the litigation nightmare that, that uh, 
well, most everything's become, but you've got tort lawyers going after people in malpractice. There's really no sharing of information about what worked and what doesn't work. And so if you're a consumer of healthcare, you not only don't see prices, you don't get quality ratings for doctors. I mean, I would love to see something where we had a, uh, I guess a, a Craigslist or something where people were posting up on the internet, well, this doctor's X, Y, Z. Now, maybe that's, maybe that's starting to happen informally, but there's certainly no formal way to judge who's a good doctor and who's a bad doctor. Well, hospitals, they do have morbidity tables and stuff like that, and they, they do keep very careful statistics. Uh, some hospitals, of course, are simply better than others, and they have a they have better results. They have fewer adverse results from you know appendectomies but, or whatever. But, but but how do we, as a potential appendectomy patient, appendectomy? I'll try. I'll pick something else. <laughs> <laughs> as a potential knee replacement patient, how's that? Uh, can pick and choose hospital. How do we know which one's better than the other, except word of mouth? And basically, it's word of mouth. And as far as I know, I mean, maybe that's there's an opportunity there for people to rate. I, I think there's a big opportunity. Maybe you and I should talk about a business because it seems to me that if you could pull together and systematize people's experiences, I mean, how many times we go out and people say, well, I had my knee done at this place and it was great. And somebody else says, well, I had my knee done same place. It was terrible. You know, and so there's, we have anecdotes, but we don't have analysis or statistics or ratings. Right. Well, we've had the hospitals that have to be forced to provide those statistics. And they would, the American Hospital Association would fight that tooth and nail, I am sure. Well, and they'd also, they also are worried about the litigation explosion, which you've written about. In, indeed. I mean, tort lawyers, we have, in the United States, it's the only country in the common law world uh, where we have what's called the, the American rule, where both sides pay their legal expenses regardless of outcome. Everywhere else, it's the English rule which is the loser pays the outcome, which makes people much more reluctant to sue. And basically this is an opportunity for lawyers to extort. I mean, they, they go to you and say, look, you know, we're suing you for $100,000 and we have enough evidence to get into court, and, but we might lose. But anyway, you're gonna to have to pay $100,000 to your lawyer, pay us $25,000 to go away. And, and this, is, this is a plain old extortion. And, Tort lawyers are, um, they're parasites. They, they contribute, they create no wealth. They simply transfer wealth from one person to another and take a big chunk of it for themselves. Um, it's a dreadful system. Um, they're very, unfortunately, tort lawyers are the second largest donators to the Democratic Party after labor unions. So labor unions are one. Tort lawyers yeah. are, th are two. Yeah, I, I get uh, neurosurgeons, what, pay as much as $300,000 a year for insurance coverage? Indeed. It's just huge. Even good ones. Um, because they're, you know, some specialties are much more high risk than others. And, you know, it's a ridiculous way to go into court. And they, they're very careful on the juries to make sure there's nobody on that jury who actually knows anything about medicine. Um, and so it really boils down to the histrionic talents of the, of the lawyers who are arguing. Yeah. And, um, and the, you know, I would like to see courts that are, do nothing but malpractice courts, that they have judges who are specially trained in medicine 
And it is the judge that calls the expert witnesses, not the lawyers, because there are plenty of expert witnesses who will tell, you know, testify in court that, yes, you know, they'll tell you, you know, unless the lawyer says, well, what are you going to say? You know, unless the guy says what he wants to hear, he doesn't get hired as an expert witness. So it should be the judges who do it. So I'm hearing a couple solutions if we could bring about. One is experts in the courtrooms who know medicine and know healthcare, who can really assess what was a good, good thing or bad thing. Um, I'm also hearing loser pays uh, is a great system, the English system, which would right. reduce tort reform. What did Texas do in their tort reform? Was it something similar to that? Well, one loser pays. Texas has seen these costs drop exponentially. Oh, oh, oh loser pay, but they, they, they did reform the system. They, you're not allowed to judge shop anymore um, in Texas. I forget the, the particulars, but Texas did do a very good job of reforming um, malpractice. So in the, in the realm of solutions, uh, why not, why, why uh, people are pushing, you mentioned and the left is pushing for national health care insurance. Uh, but you say we've already tried that here. We've got three systems we've tried that in. Right. We have Medicare, we have the Veterans Administration, and we have the Indian Health Service. And all three of them are shambles. I mean, none of them as a private insurance company would survive a week. Um, they're just very, very badly and inefficiently run. And, um, you know, why should we turn over all of medical care to the government when the government has been unable to run three separate medical care systems? Um, it just doesn't make any sense. So instead, we go back to my favorite solution, the free market, and that involves price transparency? Absolutely. Prices have to be, you know, your local gas station has to post the price. Why shouldn't the local hospital post the price? And the real price, not the nominal price. The, uh, so then if they have that, then they're going to force to compete on price. Now, people will say, gee, if you force them to compete on price, they're going to cut the quality of their health care, and they're going to try to complete surgeries quicker or with less care. What, what do you, what do you, what's your, what do you, what, how do you respond to that? Well, there's, at the, right now, there is so much inefficiency in hospitals because there's no incentive to become efficient, that there's just, there's all kinds of low-hanging fruit um, and that hospitals could use to um, cut their costs. And I just don't think one day if they did that, um, then they'd be subject to being sued for malpractice if they cut corners that, you know, diminish um, success well, rate, things like that. Well, sued or else the solution that you and I came up with a little bit ago, which is that I think if you had price transparency coupled with a robust uh, uh, ranking system or rating system, a community rating system driven by both patients and by doctors and people in the field so that if if, 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 a, if a hospital or a doctor got a reputation for low prices, but also low, low quality, that word would get around. And Indeed so it would, very quickly. You, you wouldn't be looking just at price, you'd be looking at how likely it was you'd actually get your knee fixed. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's um, transparency is um, always a good idea. I think it was Louis Brandeis of Justice Brandeis who said that sunshine is the best disinfectant. He did, and he was right. <laughs> He was right. <laughs> so we're going to go, okay, so that's one solution. And then we've got the American rule. We've got uh, patient shopping. And uh, you would also reform the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the federal programs, the uh, 
what what they would pay. So the Medicare would not be generously paying every single hangnail that we have, but it would be more selective about what it would pay for. Exactly. What um, a medical savings account is what yeah. some companies have done this, and there's no reason Medicare couldn't do exactly the same thing, um, which is that they provide a certain sum of money uh, to handle routine care, scrape knees and, and the sniffles and what have you, and then in fact major medical to cover the heart attacks and knee replacements and what have you. Um, and then if you don't spend that money, um, you don't, don't have any sniffles that year, that money would go over into your retirement account. This would give everybody the incentive to ask the magic question, how much is this going to cost? So we've come up with some good ideas, price competition, a robust rating system, quality rating system, loser pays uh, litigation, healthcare savings accounts. Uh, but we, we touched on this earlier and I wanna close with a, your thoughts about how we deal with the fact that a lot of the money that gets spent at, on, in medicine it falls into two categories. One, diseases like heart disease and diabetes, which some people feel are lifestyle-related diseases. And then the other big bucket of where money gets spent is in old age, primarily the last year or two or three of life. And we were, were able to prolong life. We can prolong life for um, almost, for, I won't say forever, but for a decade or two decades when somebody has something in their 70s or 80s. How do you deal with those ethical questions? And I don't expect a short answer or a, or a definitive well, answer, but that isn't, that is the, that is the question. That is, that is to be or not to be. <laughs> how do we decide when to allow somebody to die? Because they're dying of old age and old age is an incurable disease. I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. I'm, I'm getting there on that one too. Yeah. And so, um, that, but that's a, a problem for ethicists and theologians and people like that, and, and I'm, that's not my job title, I'm afraid. But it is something as a society we're going to have to grapple with because our ability to, to keep people alive vastly exceeds our ability to understand what the right thing to do is. Right, and also we can keep them alive in a technical sense, but they're lying in a bed with tubes yeah. running out of them, and there's no quality of life whatsoever. Um, so I think you know, I don't know how, what the solution here is, but um, we're going to have to think long and hard on, on that because our technical ability keeps, you know, bounding ahead. Um, and it's still, you know, and also just think how much life expectancy has increased. I mean, when I was a child in the 1950s, I knew a woman who would live to be 107. Nobody else knew um, people that old. Now, between mother, um, you know, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, Rose Kennedy, on and on, have lived, Bob Hope, they all, Kurt Douglas is 102 and, and doing just fine. Um, Olivia de Havilland, who starred in the movie in 1939, she's still alive. Um, and so these very long lives, and you know, if it's a good quality of life, that's terrific. Um, but if it isn't, then I think um, we need to think about it. Well, let's think about it. John, thank you. Thank you for a lot of fascinating, uh, fascinating insights in the, in the history about how we ended up where we are. Uh, your piece appeared in Imprimus, Primus magazine, Hillsdale, and that can be found online? Indeed it can. Um, you can just Google on Imprimus Hillsdale, it'll come up instantly. Yeah, Imprimus Hillsdale, Hillsdale.org. 
uh, highly encourage uh, you to read it because it's uh, it, it fills out some of the details of what we've been talking about today and is the best overview of both the history and the nature of the problems we face in healthcare um, that I've I've come across. So, John, well, thank, thank you. you and and look forward to having you back on to talk about maybe we'll talk about the economic history of the United States next time. Okay, I'd be happy to do that. Empire of wealth. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.